Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about diversity and inclusion in financial services. In each episode, we seek to shine a light on successful progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer practical ideas to help drive change. And today we welcome two senior industry executives as we welcome a VC and private equity diversity champion and a national newspaper business reporter. Our first guest today is Shafi Musadiq, business reporter at The Independent. Shafi describes himself as being big on diversity and has written extensively about the ethnic pay gap, millennial recruitment and engagement, and workplace trends and opportunities. Shafi's career has included 10 years at the BBC and The Economist, and Shafi, we're delighted you could join us today. Thank you so much. Our second guest is Anu Adebajo, an investment manager at the British Business Bank, focusing on investments into venture capital funds. Her career has included five years at the Angel Co-Fund, an equity fund investing in high-growth companies. Anu is highly regarded as an advocate for the representation of ethnic minorities in the venture capital and private equity industry. And Anu, welcome and thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So as always, at the top of the show, we invite each of our guests to take one minute, approximately, to talk about initiatives that you're particularly focused on at the moment. Anu, let me start with you. Yeah, so 2018, I decided that this was going to be the year that um, I stopped talking about gender and I started solely focusing on um, ethnic diversity and rather than gender diversity. Um, So kind of I make sure that my speaking engagements, even if they are about gender, that I'm able to talk about intersectionality, um, specifically with ethnic diversity. Um, So I'm really focused on that. And then also um, within the British Business Bank um, and my team specifically, we're looking at how we can encourage fund managers um, to look at diversity, but in a non-prescriptive way and in a non-kind of box-checking way and how we really focus more on culture rather than specifically about numbers. Um, So we're looking at how we um, build that into our process as well. And there's various interesting ways that we're trying to do that um, through the questionnaire that we send to prospective fund managers. And I might talk a bit more about that later. We both certainly, well, there's a lot in there to unpack actually in terms of culture and then also some of the processes to to drive change as well. Wonderful. Thank you. Shafi, let me turn to you. What what are you focused on? Um, So very similar to Anu, it's been a kind of breakthrough year in journalism. um, And I guess we've had this whole foray recently about BBC gender pay gap um, and being a journalist we've kind of the dominating uh, perspective of, of diversity has been gender so my initiative has been kind of steering that conversation to developing more awareness about ethnic pay gaps um, and also awareness of you know, women women of colour who are often marginalised the most um, and just like Anu, um, kind of thinking about culture as opposed to just statistics. Um, and part of that, for me, from my personal perspective, is um, of people who practice certain faiths and ensuring that they don't lead parallel lives with their workplace culture and the way they can be productive at work. Fascinating. So, so let's start with a culture piece, which you both sort of referenced there. I mean, if you look at the last sort of 12 months or 24 months, let's say, where do, where do you see um, the greatest change in the context of corporate culture? Yeah, I think I think it's still very early days. Um, and I wouldn't say that I've seen anything radical yet. I've seen um, a lot of people trying to lay the groundwork for change um, culturally. Um, but 
I think it's too early to see the fruits of that because a lot of times people don't really think that they have what's what's my company culture that's that seems a bit of an abstract concept um so I think people are starting to look at it and think about it more um so for example in kind of venture capital industry um people are looking at are, how are people motivated um you know are you getting a lot of people who are really looking to kind of get rich quick at any mean by any means um and that's a particular type of person are you looking at someone who's really trying to nurture and grow businesses um and really trying to um yeah work with them long term and that me if you if they're that kind of person um they tend to have um more of a collaborative approach they tend to be um kind of in it more for the long haul they tend to be more about the team rather than about the individual and when you have um a firm any financial services firm actually um you really do need to work together as a team rather than focusing on yourself as an individual and when you if you are focusing on yourself your bonus um your perception within the firm then it might lead you to take risky behaviors that you wouldn't normally take if um you were having more of a collaborative approach so that's just one example of things that we're starting to see i think it's very early days but like i said we're starting to see um the groundwork being laid people starting to focus on that topic of culture more which hopefully maybe in the next oh, i don't know 3 three, four, five years, perhaps. Optimistic, is what, is I like that. I think it might start to, <laughs> to see something more happening. Yeah. Um, but right now it's too early to see any kind of seismic shifts. I, th- I think it's, and, and, and particularly in the world of VC and, and private equity, there are sort of two dynamics really. One, I guess, is the identification of an investment opportunity and what sort of personality and, and uh, team do you need to identify those. And the other, of course, is then working with those investment companies to help drive growth as well, which, which brings into question the, the knock-on effect of how that culture drives down into the investee companies as well and, and as leaders in that. Which uh, And are you, are you seeing a, a, an awareness of... Um, the need for greater diversity in the leadership of those investee companies as well. So we're starting to see that. And I think um, it's really interesting to see that chain because actually um, the chain very much starts with LP investors such as us moves down to the to the fund managers, the GPs, and then trickles down into the investee companies. And, and just to be clear, that's limited partners and general partners. And general partners, yes. And then trickles down into the investee companies. Um, I think it's quite hard because historically, people have, in the same way that venture funds recruit in their likeness, they also invest really in their likeness too. Um, a lot of that, this industry is about networking and connections and access to deal flow comes from your network. And people tend to have networks professionally and personally that are similar to them. It's where they feel safe. Um, so it's quite rare that you will find someone investing in someone who is the complete opposite to them. Um, so that already means that there is a tendency that if there are some cultural misbehaviors that happen at the GP level, that they will be happening at the company level just because it will be the same type of person. Um, And so they'll tend to have the same type of culture. Um, So I think a couple of things are happening. One, GPs are trying to recruit in from a more diverse pool, which will hopefully open up a more diverse uh, pool of investee companies and which should be able to kind of address some of these cultural issues because you just have people from a wider variety of backgrounds which means that they're likely to have different ideas about their kind of 
company culture, um, but also, and so what you're also seeing too is VCs um, trying to go out of their comfort zone and go to different networks. So approach networks that they wouldn't normally have approached, even if it is the same GP, but saying, okay, traditionally I go to these type of events or traditionally I just ask my existing founders to give me referrals. I'm going to kind of go out on a limb and I'm going to go to an event in another city. So it might be you know, somewhere up north Manchester, if you're a VC based in London, um, or I'm going to start looking at events that maybe target founders of colour um, somewhere I would never have gone before. And I'm going to go there and see see what's happening and see um, what those founders are like and, and kind of get to know them a bit more. So we're starting to see that. We're starting to see people recognise that. Um, and, you know, probably realistically, and, and it's as good a reason as any, um, because ultimately it's a very competitive industry people are competing for deals all the time and you end up getting the same people um, in the same deals and if you want an edge if you ultimately want your fund um, to have a great return you can't be the same as everyone else or else you'll all be at the same place when it comes to benchmarking so you need to do something different and find someone different um, to hopefully get that outsized return. What I love about that is because everything needs to come back to a commercial imperative. And that's ultimately what's going to drive change is when there's a realisation of, of, of the opportunities that are out there that are untapped, which is, strikes me as a, as a huge opportunity for diversity there as well. And, and Shafi, I mean, you look at the world as a whole, right? So as you sit back and look at the financial services industry, again, sort of, let's start with culture and see, see where we go from there. Um, when you, are you seeing that uh, financial services organisations are taking the cultural point very seriously is it is that what drives diversity change or is that a side effect of hiring lots of dni people who are trying to drive cultural change i think it's a side effect um and i think i think this comes from who are the change makers um and as a journalist and you're sitting outside the industry and you're looking within what i see are the change makers and the policy policy makers are almost they're, they're setting targets but they probably don't have a grasp of what it is they need to do beyond those targets so for example uh lloyd's bank one of the biggest banks in britain um set uh ethnic minority target of eight percent at executive level and ten percent in the whole of the workforce um and they cited that as being on par or close to par with the census of the general population I mean, that's, that's a very logical stance, but to me, is 10% of a workforce that's non-white, is that really diverse? No. So I think what that shows is that target-led initiatives are good, but what we've got to do is go beyond that. And I think the way we can solve that is, again, it's part of this legacy management of bringing in uh, or promoting young ethnic workers, um, and I think from I think what you asked Anu earlier about what has changed recently with the conversation about diversity, I think when it comes to gender diversity, we are seeing more women in the financial services sector taking the platform, and we can hear their voice. And as a journalist, what you have to remember is that journalism is almost uh, it's almost you're hearing the echoes of what's happening in a in an industry. So we're kind of seeing the ripple effects and we're kind of slightly behind. Um, and, you know, from what Annie said earlier is that, you know, 
there's there is a lag in the industry itself when it comes to tackling especially intersectionality so if there's a lag there then as a journalist reporting these issues there's going to be an additional lag when you have 50 40 30 women in the workplace they can come together and they can exert pressure on their management to change workplace culture and policy in their best best interests but when you have four five six you know non-white workers in a company of 250 workers it's a catch-22 because you're not gonna exert the right pressure for change and it's very isolating and as someone who works in an industry that's really frankly disastrous for diversity um, I felt that myself and I think is very similar in the financial services. So, so what's going to drive that change, do you think? Is it, is it, about, um, is it about leadership from the top? So, uh, and we're seeing a lot, we have a lot of discussion on, on the podcast about, you know, the very top levels of business understand perhaps the commercial imperative that we were talking about and also the need f- to drive greater diversity. Um, but is that, is that enough? If you are one of those four or five employees who are feeling very isolated and, and don't feel that they have a voice necessarily, what's going to drive that, um, that, that, that empowerment? I think there's two things. I think it's recruitment. So ensuring that your young, talented, uh, especially ethnic workers are promoted and they are skilled at management level. Because I think what happens is when you bring them up, they will bring 10 people up with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think secondly, uh, if, you know, we talk about sort of quotas and as journalists, I always have to compare industries and there's a really good example in US sports where they have the Rooney rule, where they have to have, um, a certain amount of ethnic minority candidates at interview stage. So I think we need something similar to that in financial services. And I think when you have when you have initiatives that are happening at both management level and recruitment level at HR level, then you're going to have change both short and long term. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think one of the most powerful um, dynamics that will uh, encourage change, you know, so drive change, is the power of or two actually. One is mentoring, and the other is role modelling. And I think one wonderful thing about having you both on the show today is is to actually to, to get those voices out that, that talk about you know leadership uh, and leadership from an ethnic minority perspective, but also specialists in your own field as well. Because this whole argument of if if you can see it, you can be it. If in this case, if you can hear it, you can doesn't rhyme, but be it. Um, so, and, and are you are you seeing that organisations are taking mentoring and role modelling seriously, or is that a byproduct of just individuals waking up? like you Anu and just going actually this this is my mission my mission for the year I'm going to take this topic on or or are you encouraged in your uh, efforts to be a role model so I think um for me on on the one hand um the fact that maybe I could be considered a a role model is kind of scary in some cases because I think you know to not to put myself down but you know role model at this level when you're not a partner at a fund and when you've not kind of been in the industry for a long time I think that kind of shows the lack of role models um that that I could be considered to be one shows that there just aren't enough and aren't enough at a really senior level so that's kind of on the one hand but on the other hand I think I'm quite encouraged that I get a lot of um kind of 
people who are in their graduates, mostly women um, and a lot of minority women who are graduates or still at university or have just come out of university and who just want to kind of meet up with me, talk to me and ask me questions. And it's really good. And I wish I had that um, because I didn't really. Um, and um, so I think that that's that's on, on that's yeah, that's not great. But on the other hand, it's it's also okay. So it's a very strange one for me. Um, but in terms of the wider industry, I think we're starting to see that more. Um, we're starting to see lots of mentoring schemes being set up. Um, so there are a few different organisations um, in, in my industry. I know there are a lot in the wider financial services industry. Um, but in, in my industry in particular, there's Level 20, um, which is solely focused on uh, on gender. Um, and, and then there's Diversity VC, which is looking at a wider variety of diversity. Um, and they both have an element of mentoring there. Um, we were delighted because we had Travis Winstanley on yeah, the show uh, yeah. from Diversity VC talking about exactly that, which yeah. was wonderful. Um, and then there's also um, a, a kind of more uh, a wider network of different um more it's more fragmented i think um there are, so there's other initiatives like campus capital who are kind of a, a vc that are focused on university students and it's kind of part fund but part also kind of a, a training a, a vc school for for these students to be doing in their kind of spare time whilst they're at university and they again try and do that too and try and kind of set people up with internships and that kind of thing so it's happening um i think i, I wish that it was kind of more joined up because it's such a small industry um I think it would be a lot better if, if, if it was more joined up, but I think um, people are starting to do that. Um, in wider financial services, um, I, I don't know if there are, I, I think each individual firm um, is starting to have mentoring. And I really like when people also do reverse mentoring. I think that's great. I think that's really, really good. Um, I think, you know, it's it's great for um, kind of people, senior people, especially to um, be able to, even just understand, um, just to maybe just sit down and listen and, and kind of hear, um, okay, what are the, what do you think are the barriers to your career progression? What have we been doing good at this company? What haven't we been doing? What haven't we been great at here? Um, I think that's that's really good um, to see as well. So I think things are happening. I think things need to be a bit more joined up. I think mentorship is really good because... Um, like you said, I think being able to, if, if you can see it, you can be it. Um, and, and it's more about also when you don't see it, you, you just automatically or you just kind of subconsciously think, well, this is not an industry for me. I mean, you mentioned sports earlier, Shafi, and I think people see that. For example, I know that a lot of them, there may very well be a lot of kind of young black boys say, who want to do cycling, but they don't see themselves represented um, in cycling at a competitive level. So for various reasons they think well that's not really a sport for me whereas they do see themselves in sprinting and and that's something that is obviously then very attractive to them because they think well this is actually a place that there'll be other people like me and it's kind of set up for someone like me um so we see that time and time again and i think it, it, it's that it's not just seeing it it's the absence of it is also a barrier um, rather than the presence of it being an attractive thing and, and and I think then there's there's quite a lot of really interesting uh, sort of dynamics. So one of them is um, when you talk about sort of reverse mentoring, which which I think gives a really um, which is really powerful actually. When we talk about if you want to drive change, you drive it through empathetic management and leadership, in a way, and and then also the ability to be able to kind of see see yourself in someone's job. Uh, is and and go I could do that and that resonance which is which is really important and as you look at the financial and services industry that is going through an incredible change at the moment particularly when we think about 
um, you know, data scientists. So when everything's driven by data, you know, across platforms, etc. And we think about cybersecurity and, and the talent that we need to come through uh, doesn't necessarily want to work in the work of financial services if it can't see itself in those jobs, you know, as you come right the way through from school. But if I think also about something you were saying at the very beginning, Shafi, about um, in the workplace environment is the authenticity of self and faith, particularly. And I'm just wondering whether in the context of what Anna was saying about um, reverse mentoring and understanding the kind of the faith dynamic within a workplace and have we no are we have we come beyond the day of going we have a prayer room it's sufficient to a current working environment where people's authentic um, spiritual selves can come to work as well that's a really interesting question um i still think a lot of workplaces even lack basic facilities um, and actually when we talk about faith in the workplace um, we're talking about faith in work as part of understanding what practices drive people. Um, and we're talking about lifestyle choices rather than preaching. Um, so I think, and we're in the bigger question of the UK and it's, we have really poor productivity in this country. Uh, we're, we're sort of way behind our European counterparts. So if you look at it from that perspective, um, reverse mentoring would be absolutely fantastic to understand what drives people in their daily lives. Um, it's not about preaching. You don't have to be you know, part of that religion to understand what drives a certain person. Um, and we've done so much for lifestyle choices for you know, expectant mothers, fathers. Uh, you know, we've come forward for gay, straight people, uh, queer people. So, and I think when it comes to faith, we've got to remember we're not France where we have um, a more imposing idea of the separation of faith and work. Mm -hmm. Here in the UK, I think it's a bit more fluid and we've got to take advantage of that. And the city, for me, still can be the best place to push that forward. And, and, and are there good corporate examples of organisations that understand that and understand that in order to drive productivity, um, there is a place for personal faith and, and authenticity I keep kind of co coming back to? Um, are you seeing good examples or, or is it just sort of an ideal uh, at the moment? I think in the city, it's, it's an ideal. Um, and I think that corporate, co corporate culture in itself is a culture. And sometimes, um, you know, we're talking about young ethnic minority workers. Um, you know, we're not far from Brick Lane here, um, where there's a huge young Bangladeshi Muslim population. And they live five minutes away from the city. But how many of them would be put off by working in that sort of corporate culture because it feels like a, a square mile away actually yeah literally and you know culturally um so we've got to we've got to actually take advantage of the way british culture can be quite fluid when we talk about faith but in the workplace we're yet to go you talk about examples i can't think of any examples in the city um but yet again i hate you know we talk we talk about sport and sport's a really interesting example because um a lot of uh football clubs in the uk have started to introduce prayer rooms and stadiums and initiatives where fans can meet up with each other of different faiths and if we think of them as stakeholders within an organization 
then that can be easily applied to to the workplace. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because I, I, I think, uh, and certainly in my world of fintech, I often say to people, if you want to look for good good practice, look outside your own organisation, look outside your own industry as well. So, so I'm sure. And, and, and is there anything you'd, you'd, add, you'd add to that in terms of, as you look across multiple sectors as well, uh, in from the VC and the private equity perspective? Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting one. I think um, because of the very heavy data science element of financial services i think people just don't even factor faith into anything um, and they don't factor it into the workplace because it's kind of a very much um a I, I, I don't think financial services is a spiritual industry in the slightest, <laughs> any way you slice it. So um, I think that's that's part of the that's part of the issue, um, and that's part of the reason why I think no one's looking at it. Um, so yes, that's it. It's a new one. It's a new one for me in terms of thinking about it, and actually, it's something that I, that maybe I need to think about a bit more and. Um, and, and ponder on a bit but I think part part of the reason I said is just that it just doesn't factor in I think just want to add in something there it's just um in in recent weeks this has come up for me because um I had a recent chat with with my line managers about um Ramadan where it's the month of fasting and 19 hours where I'm not gonna I don't eat or drink anything even water um so uh, you know, having that conversation at work about what my productivity is going to be like, and um, whether I could work at home, whether I can cut my hours, um, that was quite scary for me. Um, and it shouldn't be like that. And I've been in the world of work now for, you know, over a decade. And yet every year, it's still scary for me. And I think the reason why is because management, in inside me, I, I feel that management won't understand me still. Um, and you know, if you look at the data, uh, it's really interesting because there was a review, a Parker review, um, which said that only 8% of directors uh, are of ethnic minority background. Um, and when you link that to information that it's often people from those backgrounds who are probably more religious, then that sort of when we're joining the dots together about management, who's the managers, who are the policy makers, and then understanding the junior staff below and how they're motivated. When we join the dots, you can see you can see the gap, and that impacts my day to day life. And as you were talking, Shafi, um, it, it made me also think. Actually, I think the wider issue here is general flexibility and general acceptance of all different kinds of of um, lifestyles and just different kinds of of situations um so actually if i think about where i work I, I don't i think that conversation would actually be quite easy because they are very flexible in terms of working we can work from home when we need to um without really that much dialogue about the reasons why and i think if you have a culture that is flexible anyway a culture that recognizes that there's various things whether it's whether it's that you're fasting whether it is that you've got to you've got kids whether it is that it's even your dog you've got a dog that is, is not very well whatever the reason is if they can if they accept that 
you will have to sometimes adjust your working pattern or there are just going to be slight differences in the way you work. If they understand that overall and that they are, they're vocal about the fact that they are accepting of that, um, then all these kind of conversations become easier. But I think in financial services, you have a culture, you have a historic culture of people being chained to their desks, of people putting in a lot of FaceTime, um, of people thinking that because you're working from home, you're going to be less productive when actually people anecdotally and i'm sure there must be some some facts behind it that people tend to say that they're more productive when you're at home because you don't have those times of stopping to get a coffee and have a chat and then someone showing you something on online and then you're, you're walking up and down and doing different things and chatting to people you are very focused and you're also conscious of the fact that you're at home um, and you want people to be sure that you are definitely working so <laughs> then you're being productive so i think it's a wider conversation about flexibility and about attitude to different types of working and different types of working styles that needs to happen within um, companies. Um, and I think then they will allow room for a variety of things to rise up. And, you know, while you're talking there, I'm wondering whether one of the uh, the interesting opportunities that will drive this home to senior executives is when you think about uh, ageing parents, and actually care for ageing parents, which mostly is preserved of people at a certain age range. And again, I don't want to be too too uh, specific about that, but uh, but it's that middle management, senior management layer that where that responsibility fits, and that's where flexible. That could be at one dynamic. It's always looking for those kind of leapfrog moments and those driving dynamics that that might uh, might shine some focus on areas of of improvement. So let's take a moment there to turn to Cynthia and Robert for some research to support today's discussion. We're keen to highlight all strands of diversity on the podcast and found this insightful article which touches on faith. Dynamic Working Around the Moon, an article on Nationwide's website, discusses how the Building Society have planned to support staff and maintain productivity during the period of Ramadan. Here are a few of the plans that Nationwide have in place. Staff who are fasting are encouraged to consider using any outstanding time off in lieu or annual leave during this period. Assessments and observations are carried out before the start of Ramadan, as the first few days of fasting can affect prolonged concentration. Staff social events planned during this period will not have a focus on food and drink, so all staff are able to attend. With members of staff taking time off for Eid, there are plans in place for maximum capacity for staffing. Nationwide believes that staff productivity has not been affected because they have taken these steps. In addition to facilitating staff around Ramadan, Nationwide also have faith and reflection rooms on many sites, as well as their faith and belief network for staff. Thanks, Cynthia and Robert. And links to the research can be found on our website, diversitypodcast.com. And remember, that's diversity with a C, not an S. And that's where you can find all our episodes and sign up for early notifications of future recordings. Please do follow us on Twitter at DiversityPod. And Diversity Podcast is available on Bright's Talk and all good podcast channels. And we'd love a rating because it all helps promote the show. So, so when we've been thinking about what the commercial imperative for driving change, uh, and everybody refers to the McKinsey study, are you, I, I, do you have other sources? Where do you turn to to get your data that will give a compelling reason for change? So right now it's just the McKinsey study. There's really nothing else. And I'm really almost sick of talking about the McKinsey study. And, and that's the only data point that seems to come up um, for anybody, because um, especially in the UK, there really isn't much other data um in the us there's a lot more but it doesn't really make sense to extrapolate it because it's just a very different makeup um and a, a very different type of country um so 
right now it's just the McKinsey study. And I think we there's a real need for more research um, and more research beyond gender. So I think we had a very hot moment for gender um, in the last few years. And so everyone rushed to do research and studies around gender, um, but no one is really looking at um, other types of diversity and trying to get the data behind that. Um, I do know that Diversity VC are trying to or aiming to look this year at um, ethnic diversity um, and repeat the study they did on gender within the VC industry. Um, but it just in terms of, of, of wider than that, in terms of within other segments of financial services, there doesn't seem to be much going on. People seem to be kind of resting a bit on their laurels and, and happy to just use um, even just to use gender diversity data in articles about generic general diversity and they don't seem to see a problem with not having other data points just to kind of touch on the importance of it um i think we kind of make assumptions that everybody um understands why diversity and inclusion is important and we think that everybody is on board with it but i don't actually believe that that's the case i think that there are a lot of people who are being swept along by it who feel maybe forced um to address this issue and actually they don't really understand or they don't understand why or be- or believe and um, that it's important they think that you know they're getting the returns they want with a te- with a team that looks like this a team that is exactly the same a team that's mostly made up of kind of over 40 white males and they say well why should we change that why should we take a risk and i find that really interesting because financial services in general is really risky um and venture capital certainly is one of the riskiest asset classes um and so why wouldn't you um look to on the one hand take a risk and bring in someone who's slightly different and who can offer a different point of view but on the other hand um also look to um diversify your human portfolio as i call it um and but isn't there an argument that uh, when people look out and, and say, yes, we do. Okay, so we might want to change whether you know, we're hesitant to, or whether we should, or whether we're being, being told that we should, but we just can't find the people. Is is there a supply challenge? So I think again, this is something that that annoys me quite a lot when people say this. Um, and um, you know, you could see that very much um, happened in the US. A lot of people talked about that. Um, and then there's an initiative now called All Raise, which was set up by um, a few kind of VCs there. And All Raise um, set up by a few um, female VCs there, kind of in response to the uh, things that happened in that industry, um, kind of a year or so before the Me Too um, stuff started coming to the forefront. Um, and it that one of the things that they do is they've got a database of founders and a database of um, potential VCs or people who are interested in becoming VCs. And they have a lot of names on that list and people can come to them and say, okay, we're looking for um, for someone to join as a, as a partner level or even associate level um, and they can provide people. Um, so I think that supply is, is not the issue. If you look at um, one of the things that you kind of get told in financial services is they want people with finance backgrounds um, or kind of people with STEM backgrounds. And if you look at universities, if you look specifically at subjects like medicine, like dentistry, like engineering, and look at the type of people who do those courses, you have a really strong ethnic minority contingent of people studying those courses. Um, So there are people who have that background, but somewhere between university and 
um, getting into financial services that they get lost. And, and is that a reputational? I mean, if people aren't resonating with why come into financial services, is that because, I, I mean, I wonder, Shafi, whether there's a big reputational question there about why people would want to work in financial services. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, th- I think the interesting thing is, you know, what Annie was saying earlier about some people being swept along this journey. And it reminds me of, I did reporting on the Google uh, memo that was released. Uh, and there's one guy who was absolutely just could not get the point about diversity. And I think that's quite a good, uh, I think that's quite a good indication of uh, the link to whether the city itself is speaking the same language as uh, as its prospective new generation. Um, as a journalist, you know, often we kind of, uh, the only times that where we talk to city firms are often negative news. Um, and that's often, often journalists are quite made the scapegoats of how the narrative is told. But city firms can engage better and shape that narrative. Um, and it's it's really interesting because the past, you know, very recently, I'd say uh, eight weeks or so, my inbox has been flooded by city firms who want to get their name out um, with the gender pay gap reporting, and you know they, they want their they want their name associated with, um, I guess, part of of a trend. But this is this is not a trend, um, and I think. Part of the solution here is for better understanding of, um, number one, uh, I guess, not talking in jargon to people who don't understand financial services. Um, And young people are consuming a lot of media on social media and on their phones. So if you can get through to them via, I guess, you know, the way that they're consuming news, then we could that could be part of the solution of I guess talk talking to young people on their level. Um, but yeah, as a journalist, I feel I feel that city firms still talk in rather robotic voice. Yeah, but I, I think that's a function of um, them trying to keep certain type of people out, or rather trying to. Um, keep in the people that they're comfortable with um, and, and it's kind of placed as a, a initial barrier. So, you know, if you don't understand the terminology or if you don't have access to the normal recruitment channels, then you're not the type of person that we'd want here anyway. And I think it is that that that's a, an initial barrier that some people almost use as part of their recruitment process. Sorry, I was going to say what you said there smells to me like a boys only membership club. Um, and that's the vibe that we still have how that changes which, which, which says to me huge opportunity actually which is, is if the industry begins to communicate more clearly about what it does and how it engages with with new talents that comes from many different pools that we haven't perhaps tapped into previously that that could be an opportunity in the context of diversity and inclusion we're going to have to end it there I know we could talk for, for a long time so Anu Shafi thank you both very much indeed thank, thank you, you so much This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Roy Pinto-Fernandez for their insights. 
You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com, and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity Podcast, remember to give us a rating or review. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening. 